guys, welcome to a new episode of Sauce Up the Scary. Derek Zoo and Jeff Wright back in the studio with you. Jeff, what's going on, buddy? How are you? I'm doing good, man. Living the dream. Just finished Blind Manor actually last night as we're recording, so this is fresh. I'm ready to talk about it. Well, perfectly splendid. <laughs> good deal, man. Let's uh, let's dive into it. Uh, I don't have any trailers. Do you have any uh, horror reporter stuff? Well, actually, I do, sir. This week's uh, some of it is good, and some of it is a dumpster fire. Um, the thing that I want to start off with is not necessarily, you know, horror per se. It's horror oh, adjacent, no. I guess. But it's something we've talked about quite a bit on the show. Uh, I think we we saw it together in the Facebook group yesterday. Uh, Zack Snyder is bringing back Jared Leto's Joker for his... You know, Justice League cut or whatever. Can you believe that? Yes. Yes, I can. I'm having a hard time grasping that Zack Snyder wants to wants to walk in that. I'm stumbling over my words. Like, why do you want to get that stink all over you? Well, I if I'm not mistaken, I think that there were there was a time where Jared Leto's Joker was going to be in the Justice League movie. And so the idea is that Zack Snyder just doesn't have enough sense to know when he's he's been profited from above. Correct. I I think it's the dumbest thing ever. I, I don't know who said this online. I read a bunch of stuff and I, I can't give credit. But but someone said there's a lot of debate over who did the best Joker. Right. You've got Jack. You've got Heath. Uh, now you got Joaquin. He said, but there is no debate over who did the worst. And this just fits so nicely into my idea that this Justice League Snyder Cut is going to be the definitive proof we've wanted or that I've wanted to help people realize Zack Snyder is an empty suit when it comes to telling yeah telling stories. Yeah, man. Uh, I read that before you put it in the I think I think you put it in the pop culture Coram Deo uh, Facebook group. That's what it was. Yeah, that's what it was. Um, no, you're fine. I read that maybe a few hours before you put it in the in that Facebook group and I was just livid. Like I was in the office at my at my job and we were kinda hanging out after we we ran a <laughs> if you could believe it, we ran a Christmas rehearsal yesterday, uh since we opened our Christmas show a week from today. Yikes. <sighs> but uh <laughs> I was in the office and I, I read that and I literally just out loud went, Oh, for crying out loud. Mm-hmm. And everybody was like, what happened? And I was like, I, it's not going to be as big of a deal to you guys as it is to me. But Jared Leto's coming back to play the Joker. And two other guys were like, you got to be freaking kidding me, man. It's like, oh, good. Other people are <laughs> as upset about this as I am. Uh, yeah, man, I don't I don't get it. I Maybe it ties together some points that Snyder wanted to do with the with the whole uh, Robin situation that we got in Batman versus Superman. Mm-hmm. But I mean, besides that. That's the only thing I could think of that would make sense for him to be in this thing. But even then, man, like once you've seen like once you saw the negative reviews that came in for Suicide Squad, wouldn't you just be like, ah, we don't need him. For sure. For sure. The the only thing I wonder is if Snyder thinks he can direct him differently. Yeah. So do you think they're I mean, are we gonna get the like you know, gangsta joker? Or is Snyder gonna be like, look, dude, we need to go in a different direction? Because if it's just the Suicide Squad guy Zack Snyder is dumber than I thought in terms of storytelling. I'm sure he's a perfectly thoughtful man in real life, but if he brings in more of what we got in Suicide Squad, this is, I mean, you might as well just resign from creating films. Yeah. I don't know, man. I I truly don't know. I I hope that it's different, but much like yourself, I don't have much faith in Zack Snyder to do anything worth anything. I, I guess it's crazy to me that like, We've all we've heard this. We've heard so much about the Zack Snyder cut, the Zack Snyder cut. I thought it was in the can. Yeah, me too. Like, I don't understand why he's having to do so much reshoots and like bringing back Affleck and doing all this stuff. It's it's real befuddling to me how this whole process is going down. If if he didn't have his version of the movie already in the can, then why are we? I don't know. The more I'll I'll, I'll say this and we can. Uh, if you've got any more to say on it, then you can. But this is going to be my final thing. The more light that comes out in this project, the more I want it to go back into the dark hole that it came from. 
Oh, no, sir. We are in complete agreement on that. Except except for that point that I keep coming back to. I want it out there. I do want it out there. Yeah. And I want to never have to hear how Zack Snyder is some underappreciated genius again. Yeah. Let's just get it on the record, get it done, and move on. Sure. Um. So that's all I've got to say about that, like Forrest Gump. But I do have a couple quick hitters for you. I don't know if they'll grab your attention, if we have anything to say about them. I just figure people who are listening to a new segment might want to know. Uh, Unsolved Mysteries on Netflix, which we enjoyed the first run of very much, has released their new set of episodes. And they're also coming out with a companion podcast in 2021. Okay. Have you listened to the Netflix companion podcast? No, I have not. Yeah, they're pretty good. They they generally they talk to the director of the episode and and kind of go through some of the details of the film, or excuse me, the the episode. Uh, it's good stuff. And if they want to do that as a separate entity, I'm probably going to sign up for that. I know everybody's probably got more podcasts than they can listen to, but I love true crime, unsolved mysteries, like so many in the horror community do. And uh, I'll check it out. So early 2021 is all we know right now for for the next set of uh, or for the launch of that podcast. Okay. We also got news that the Texas Chainsaw Massacre is moving forward. The website has uh, released this poster that is a really cool looking, I don't know what the medium is. I would assume watercolor, but I'm not an artist and I could be saying something very stupid there. (laughs) the, The money is that the face of madness returns in 2021. So we are getting, according to them, although I have more to say about this in general later on, uh, we're getting more Texas Chainsaw Massacre in 2021. Does that excite you about the coming year? Uh, you know, I've I've always kind of been ambivalent about the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Mm-hmm. I'm the same way. Uh, those movies aren't normally my cup of tea. Um, I do like the character of Leatherface, but I've never been just flat out amazed by the movies. Um, so I'll say I'm cautiously optimistic. Yeah. Well, I'm happy to meet you there. It's not my cup of tea precisely either, although I find kind of the I actually I find the franchise itself more interesting than the movies, like kind of the guerrilla spirit of filmmaking and whatnot. Yeah, Uh, we also, according to Bloody Disgusting, know that this is going to pick right up after the 1974 movies events. Okay, so what I think that's what the the blurb indicates. And if so, I'm good with that. If we get Halloween two from you know, this this reboot uh, in terms of Texas Chainsaw Massacre Part 2. Cool by me. Let's go. I'll, I'll watch it. Yeah, I'll yeah. watch it. Um, speaking of new movies coming, just quick hitters. We're getting a Don't Breathe sequel, and Stephen Lang is coming back as the blind man. This time he's holed up in an isolated cabin, and we go from there. Uh, I'm okay with that, new, that news in the sense that I like the first one, and... We'll be happy to watch the next one. This one apparently is supposed to drop August 13th, 2021. Okay. Uh, you think the blind man can carry a movie as a central character? <sighs> no. I feel the same way. First inclination would be to say no to that. But again, I'll be happy to be wrong if it, if it does. Yeah, the name escapes me right now, but it really felt like the young lady carried Don't Breathe. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if the blind man can, but... Apparently, the blind man has been raising a young girl in this isolated cabin, and so maybe we'll get another version of it. Yeah. If it's if it's half as good as the first one, I'm on board. Yep. Last quick hitter here. Uh, so Sony has pushed Ghostbusters again. Boo. So we went from anticipating the release in March 2021 to now looking at June 11th, 2021. Oh, well, that makes sense. Well, I I'm, I guess I'm glad you're taking the optimistic look at this. Uh, I feel like the coronavirus situation has put everybody in a really rough spot in terms of knowing how to react, how to make money, uh, how to get groceries, right? So, like, I mm-hmm. want to acknowledge all that's going on. But it appears that largely the movie industry's approach has been, well, let's just keep rolling it back rather than getting innovative. and. I don't know how much longer that process can can go on. Yeah. I don't know that we have any definite hope about June 2021 being significantly different than March or October 2020. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And so if the idea is let's just keep kicking the can down the road, I mean, eventually 
you're going to have a version of the New Mutants thing where I'm going to think, ah, you didn't really want me to watch this movie anyway. Or some new film takes the attention, right? Something, Something's going to show up that makes kicking the can down the road ultimately a, a futile strategy. And so I'm not saying it has to be released for 20 bucks a pop to video on demand. I'm not saying that is it. But it basically feels like those are the two approaches that Hollywood has come up with. Put it on video on demand for more than a lot of people are going to want to pay or just keep kicking it down the road until some blessed future date. And I'm kind of dissatisfied with both of those. Yeah, I see. I mean, I definitely get where you're going on that. I, I guess for me, the reason that it makes sense for the movie to June is, is that it seems like that would be a summer blockbuster tentpole movie. Oh, for sure. I just don't know if we're going to have a place where blockbusters bust the block. Yeah. So, you know, we, we saw Regal Cinema shut down their UK and US theaters, right? Mm-hmm. I don't even know if AMC is still open or not. I drove by the theater the other day in our town, and it was Ghost Town. Yeah. So, I mean, you, you just can't sit back and assume the world's going to snap back to normalcy in some arbitrary set of time. And it just seems dumb that all these people who whose job is to release movies are in October of 2020. The only thing they've come up with is, ah, let's just roll it back. Yeah. Like, I get that I'm not proposing uh, a solution, but I'm also not paid full time to think about how to get people to spend money on movies. Yeah. And just falling back on the old theater system that may not exist seems really lazy. Yeah. So, um, just to kind of piggyback on that, uh, Alamo Draft House shut back down here. Yeah. Uh, but I got an email Saturday. Uh, yeah, I guess it was Saturday saying that you can rent an AMC theater for yourself and 20 people. Um, and it comes with a movie, and I think like popcorn and a drink for a hundred bucks. I saw that too and was initially pretty excited about that. Mm-hmm. But did you see that there's a pre-selected list of movies? Yes. Did you look at them? Yes. Were you excited to watch any of them? Yes. Oh, really? What were you? What was there? Uh, we had in ours. We had The Conjuring, The Conjuring Two. Uh, we had Jumanji, which I know you're not a fan of, but you know I am. Um, and I think those were all the the hundred dollar ones. You could watch Tenet for a hundred and fifty. Yeah. See, uh, I mean, I'm, I get it. Like, I love the Conjuring movies, mm-hmm. but that is not appointment viewing for me where I'd rent a theater, even for a hundred bucks. Yeah. If I could watch Jurassic Park, Return of the Jedi, uh, The Exorcist, you know, films that I never got to see in a theater. Yeah. That dude, I would probably do that a couple times. Sure. But all those, I mean, I saw the Conjuring movies in the theater. Yeah. And I honestly would probably rather just watch them at my house. I do watch them at my house. Fairly regularly. Yeah. For me, it was it was something where I was talking I was talking to the cast about like, hey, this would be fun to do as kind of like a morale booster for everybody. You know, why don't we rent this movie theater out uh, right before Halloween? Since we're knee deep in Christmas stuff, let's actually have some Halloween stuff and let's watch like The Conjuring and The Conjuring 2. And and most everybody was excited about it. Uh, But I get what you're saying. Like if I could go back and watch, I don't know. I guess the original Star Wars, um, you know, I don't think I got to see Batman Returns in theaters. I know I got to see 89 Batman, but I don't think I got to see Batman Returns in theaters. Like if I go go back and see Batman Returns or Aladdin, <laughs> as goofy as that sounds. No, I get it. Um, you know, stuff like that. Then, yeah, it's definitely worth the money. But I think for me, it would just be fun to the experience of me and my work friends going and doing this thing for me is is what pays it off. Or if like we could uh, honestly, man, if if you and I, I mean, I know that we can't because the majority of our our uh, listeners are you know all over the country. And God bless you for listening. But you know, if we could if we could find a centralized location that it, where it was safe for everybody to come in and we could rent a theater for a hundred bucks and be like, hey, here's the Conjuring, and afterwards we're going to talk about it. Like I think that'd be fun. Yeah, I wonder if we could live stream, maybe not live stream, there'd, there'd be distribution rights with that. I wonder if we could do something cross-platform with our friends at Ramblings from Nowhere in Cookville, do some kind of live podcast taping while we watch The Conjuring or after we watch The Conjuring, 
with listeners, you know, uh, in the area, maybe bring in Jody Webster, who's close at hand, had kind of like a roundtable discussion. We we might not have, we might not have workshop that a little bit after we after we don't after we stop recording. Yeah, sounds good to me. But it would take something like that for me to get really excited about the AMC plan. Yeah, it's where it all comes back around to. And yeah. if I could just get Jurassic Park or something else, I'd be up for it. Mm-hmm. And I get why. I get why Hollywood, who thinks the world's going to go back to normal, doesn't want that because they think, well, we'll bring Jurassic Park back sometime, and you'll give us full gate prices for it. And I just look back at them and go, "Are you sure? Are you sure you're going to get a chance to do that?" Yeah, yeah. Um, just on the subject of of uh, theater, still, I know that my AMC locally is still um, is still renting out. Or not, not just running out, but it's still showing stuff like Tenet is still playing at my local theater. Sure. So it's still happening. It's just not, you know, it's, there's no new movies coming out. Yeah. Crazy. Crazy to think we'd ever live in that world, buddy, but that's where we're at. Yeah. Also, um, they've got The Nightmare Before Christmas and Hocus Pocus, which again, I'm not over the moon about, but those are fun Halloween movies. Yeah. The that, job that would be fun. Yeah. The driving in in Sparta is doing that too. Oh, okay. Yeah. If uh, and I mean, if you could get twenty people, I wouldn't mind to watch Hocus Pocus in the theater for five dollars. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, that makes sense. So, well, you're more optimistic than I, which is a good thing. I just uh, I just need Hollywood to kind of. I mean, the the two challenges they're facing are how to shoot movies and how to distribute movies. Yeah. And I get it. That's a major sea change in their industry. Absolutely. Sure. But we all know Hollywood has a lot of money and a lot of people who are paid to navigate those kind of things. Yep. Can we just get some better answers? Yeah, I agree. All right, I'm climbing off my soapbox. We can get into an actual piece of new content that was good. Yeah. Um, before we do that, though, there is uh, something that I was wanting to talk to you about, and I don't have all the details on it, and I apologize for that. But apparently, Warner Brothers TV has come out with, I think it's four or five small horror uh like shorts they're 15 minutes long it's like like i said four or five different horror films very short easy to digest and i will put them in the facebook group that's good by me <laughs> well thanks for for doing it for us i know the bloomhouse stuff on amazon's live so yep you know some people are out there hustling it out trying to figure out how to make this stuff happens and uh, you know, Godspeed to all you fine folks at Bloomhouse and Warner Brothers and, and, and places not falling into the trap I've just been belly aching about. Yeah. It's nice to know that there's still some like legit content that we're still getting, even if uh even if it feels like the things are bleak. Mm-hmm. But uh yeah, man, you ready to get into this thing? Yeah, man. Let's pull the curtain on the Bly Manor episodes five through nine. Yes. Pull the string five through nine. What? No! Spoiler alert. I teased this last week, and so I want to start off by saying this, uh, and I guess this kind of gives away what I think about the general questions that we always ask at the end of the series, or at the end of the the episode. But to me, this isn't a horror series. It's a love series. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's that's the conclusion that Flora gives old Jamie at the end, right? Yeah. And I, that's why I didn't want to say it to you before you got to watch it. But I mean, it really is, man. Like it's, it is more of a love story than it is of a horror story. I think that's correct. And and I was okay with that. Yeah. It's not what I would have initially. It's not what I was hoping for. Right. But having seen it through to completion now, I'm more than satisfied. I'm not, um, I'm not over the moon the way I was with The Haunting of Hill House, just all cards on the table. But I am at a much better place than I was in our most recent episode where I was largely dissatisfied. Yeah. And as a love story with some significant horror elements, yeah, I'm I'm good with that. Yeah, I uh I'm curious to hear all of your thoughts on these episodes. Uh like I told you last week, I think that this thing really ramps up in episode 5, The Altar of the Dead. Uh and I just want to like, did you see, did you see the big twist coming in this one? With episode five? Yeah. Hannah Gross being dead? Uh, yeah, actually, I I had my suspicions. If you had asked me when we were recording, 
what do you think's going on with Hannah? If you have to pick, I would have went to she's dead. Mm-hmm. Now I would have I would have put like a thirty five percent probability on it. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, from like I, I don't know which episode it takes place in, but they kind of highlight that Hannah doesn't eat. Right. And early on, my wife, who is not the horror prognosticator, like the second time they said it, she's like, "Oh, Hannah's dead." And I thought I had seen Hannah interact more directly with physical objects, like not just push something or whatever, but like carry stuff. Mm-hmm. I was like, I don't think that's it. But the more they showed us that she didn't eat, the more I thought, well, maybe she's dead. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. Um, and so I do think they kind of telegraphed, not as much as the love story with Jamie and Danny, but they telegraphed Hannah being dead just a bit. Yeah. Um, I, so that's, that's a really compelling episode. You know, I get why everybody loves episode five. I get why it has really high reviews. You know, I think that, and something you're probably going to get tired of, maybe our listeners will too, is me saying haunting of Hill House. It's supposed to be the equivalent, I think, of the, the, the bit neck lady. Yeah. Right. Yeah. The bit neck lady. It didn't land that way for me because I thought there were more, there was more hinting at it, at least hinting that I picked up on. Mm-hmm. Also, her seeing the crack random places that disappeared, they're just, they're highlighting something is uniquely happening to her. So it didn't, uh, it didn't leave me wide eyed and boggled. But I was like, oh, okay, okay, cool. And it was really interesting storytelling. I do wonder about the rules of the world though. And I, I'm, I'm not sure if you'll even know, and our listeners can check me too. Did we not see Hannah lighting candles after she was dead? Was it all before she was dead that she lit candles? I see. That's a that's a really good question. I don't know. Did she light them, or or did we walk into the room and the candles were already lit? And it could be her remembering doing it in the past. I. This is why I'm going to have to go back and watch the series again. But it's those yeah. little details where either he tricked me as a good storyteller, and and kudos to you, Flanagan. Yeah. Or there's some world building issues that are that I'm going to quibble with. But I'd like to know. I'd like to know yeah. if there's anyone listening to this. Did Hannah light candles after she was dead, or was that all before? Because I'm pretty sure she didn't eat a meal after she died. Right. And I'm not sure that I know for sure. I use the word sure as much as I can here um, <laughs> that I saw her like put her hand on the back of a kid or open a door or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I guess ghosts can do that. Like, I don't remember seeing it when uh, when Viola walks into the manor, the doors are just open. You know what I mean? And I don't know if she opened them or if some supernatural malevolence opens doors. I, I don't know. But it was some of the world building. I just have I have questions. Did this episode, did it help you? to appreciate the Hannah Gross character more, or did it make you double down on your opinion from last week? It made her more tragic, Okay, which I think is the aim. Uh, I felt much worse for her. You know, when, when towards the end of the series, she and her memory of Owen talk about the kind of life they could have had, that landed for me. I, I generally want people to be happy and, and to have that happily ever after moment. Mm-hmm. And so it it did... It made me feel more compassion towards her. Um, but I don't know if it made her a, I don't know that it made her a more well-rounded character. I can't go there, but I don't have as many complaints because I now view her through a lens of sympathy. Mm. Which also brings me to another question there on the altar of the dead. So when Danny and Jamie go off for their failed attempt at making out for the first time, mm-hmm. we kind of leave Hannah and Owen talking at the fire. And he's he's pushing her to come away to Paris with him, right? Mm-hmm. And that's a real conversation that took place because he doesn't know she's dead. She doesn't know she's dead. They're really having that conversation, right? Yes. I'm sorry. No, it's okay. I'm just trying to track this down. So how can he hear her say, oh, what would I do in Paris? But not hear her say, yes, Owen, I'll go away with you to Paris in a way that would make the reveal happen right then. Hmm. You get what I'm saying? Because mm-hmm. she gets up and runs after him, and that's where you get the like, oh, she can't go with them because they're leaving the property. And that, you know, I get it. It's a powerful moment in the story. But like, if he heard her three minutes before, why can't he hear her now? Yeah. And I get the gravity stuff won't let them move on to the afterlife. I, I understand that device, but I don't understand why she can participate in one part of the conversation, but not the next. 
And like, did she just disappear to Owen's eyes at some point? I, I just have questions. I just want to know how this worked. I wish I knew, man. Uh, I mean, you, you raise really interesting questions and I wish, you know, a lot of times you'll, you'll raise interesting questions and I, I most, most of the time I have answers for you, but I don't on this one. Yeah. Well, listeners, I'd invite you into that too. And you may be sitting there screaming at your podcast player saying, dummy, it's XYZ. I am that dumb. I do need to hear the answer. So even if you feel like you're talking down to me, let me know. I just didn't get the mechanics there. I also complained about Henry, uh, you know, being kind of, uh, uh, you know, he was an actor that I really enjoyed, but he'd been put on the sidelines. And I maybe Uh enjoyed episode six, I think, the Jolly Corner, where we're dealing with the smiling, awful version Mm. of Henry. Yes. That actually probably might have been my favorite episode now that I think about it. I loved that grinning ghoul who is the externalization of all of his guilt. Yeah. I just thought it worked super well, man. Yeah. Uh, Like I said, for me, episode five is where it picks up and six goes right into it, too. Um, Six is really good. And I, I too, I don't think it's my favorite. I think if I'm going to pick a favorite episode. It's probably going to be the romance of certain old clothes, which is the penultimate episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think that the biggest reason why that's my favorite is because I'm such a Kate Siegel fan. Man, I felt the same way. I was like, there's Kate. Good to see her. Yeah. Um, as a matter of fact, when when I found out that Kate Siegel was the faceless uh, lady in what the third episode or whatever, where she kills Peter, I was a little upset because I was like, are you effing kidding me, Flanagan? Like, this is what you're going to. Uh, regulate your wife to is just a faceless uh, entity. We don't get to see Kate Siegel be Kate Siegel. You know, the the amazing I'm getting real choked up about it, Jeff, Uh, (laughs) the amazing actress, you know, that we know. And so when you when you finally get to that episode and you finally get to see the backstory about how Bly Manor became Bly Manor and you get to see, I think her name's Lady Victoria. That sounds right. Or Viola. Viola. That's right. Victoria is the is the main actress who plays Danny. Um, when when you get to see Kate Siegel be Lady Viola and her headstrongness and everything, I was like, yes, that's what I came here for. Uh, but for me, this is, uh, again, episode five is where it picks up and it just continues to get interesting up until the end of the of the series. Sure. Sure. Um, kind of moving through each one of the episodes still, when you get to seven. And you realize the plan uh, that Peter wants to possess Miles and Rebecca is going to possess Flora and they're going to grow to physical maturity together and live a new life together. Uh, (laughs) I don't know if I'm supposed to be as horrified by that as I think in real world terms it it would necessarily require because Jessel and Quint are romantically engaged. Yeah. And they're about to possess two siblings. Yeah. And I wonder if I could put Flanagan in a chair right here, if he'd say, yeah, don't get hung up on that. That's not what we were trying to sort of foreshadow. But I just couldn't help it. I was like, holy cow, dude, this got super gross really fast. It's not just destroying the consciousness of the kids, which is a problem in and of itself. You know, that's horrendous. But then you add in that layer and I'm like, dude, I don't I just wish that wasn't even I just wish that hadn't been suggested. You know, yeah. Could like one of the kids be the caretaker's kid? (laughs) You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. And I get that they had different dads, but they had the same mom. Right. Just weird. It is. I I completely agree. Um, And it was, you know, thankfully they they brushed past it real quick. You know, you realize that that uh, Jessel couldn't do that to Flora, which was nice to see. But yeah, in those moments where it looks like this is what's going to happen, I just I was cringing. So it's like, okay, these these two are, you know, they've been their brother and sister. Please don't make these actor, you know, these actors turn this into an incestuous relationship or or whatever the situation is. You know, I think that there was a what was the movie? Uh, Golly, there was a scary movie like that a couple of years ago where that happened. And Loki was in it. Hmm. Yeah, I can't remember. Yeah. But anyway, it was real. Even, you know, even adult actors, it was really gross to see, you know, these people who had, who you had thought were brother and sister all of a sudden become romantically involved. What's it? What's his name? Tom Hiddleston. Thank you. Tom Hiddleston. And I think uh, 
Oh my gosh, man. My brain is jello this morning. Too many decongestants? I guess so. Uh, Tom Hiddleston and <sighs> redheaded actress that was in It. Why can't I think of her name? She was in Ma or Mama. She was in Interstellar. I'm so mad right now. <laughs> Crimson Peak. Um, Crimson Peak. That was the name of the movie. Yes. Jessica Chastain. Holy smokes. There you go. Good night. Uh, I'm going to take a nap after this is over with. Um, yeah. And so they were playing their brother and sister in this thing, but they were actually, they're actually, uh, spoiler Wahlberg. Um, they were actually lovers as well. They were having an incestuous relationship. And I just remember that being just skin crawling to me. So even the thought of it happening this way, uh, I remember thinking to myself, like, is this, is this Flanagan's Stephen King moment in it? Where 20 years from now, he's going to be like, oh, I shouldn't have done that. <laughs> yeah, I, again, I don't think he wanted it to be the central focus, but you just can't help but like realize the implications. Right. Uh, yeah, it was it was rough. Another issue I have that's kind of left me unsettled about the series is who am I actually supposed to root for and feel sympathetic toward? Yeah. So I know Danny. I know Jamie, although they do some stuff with Jamie being like, you know, I did some bad stuff when I was a kid or whatever. Uh, Flora and Miles. But with this episode, we get more, I think it's episode seven, we get more of like Quint's backstory. And so I really like the move to have Quint hate Hannah. And, you know, he says, like, I'm just sick of watching you not have to deal with reality or whatever he says. Right. Yeah. Like, he just hates that she has been able to carry on in a way he couldn't. And he is so the kid does a great job delivering the lines. He's so smarmy and condescending towards her. And like when he pushes her down the well and she pops back up as a ghost and he says, meet me after the extended Wally E. Coyote metaphor. Yeah. I hated him, man. Hated his guts. Yeah. And so I don't get why we have this, hey, look, Peter Quint's mom was a really bad person and his dad abused him and and feel like he died when his mom asked him to, to rob the uncle. Like, I think I would just rather him be an evil dude who made yeah. wicked choices. Yeah. Does it add realism to you? Or, I mean, what do you think the motivation is there? I think that I think that's what it's going for. I think that it's going for. All of these people, with maybe the exception of Owen, have dark secrets in their past. Unless Owen killed his mom or something. I don't know. Um, I, that was a joke. Uh, but it, it does. It seems like everybody has a dark side. And you don't really want to root. Or even though you don't want to root for Peter Quint, I think Flanagan wants you to, to feel sorry for him. But for me, it just came off as unnecessary, just like it did for you. Yeah. I mean, I Hannah's just, tragic. I, Danny's tragic. Yeah. Owen kind of gets a good life. But like, I just didn't get why I needed to care about the guy who was going to do something worse to these kids than had been done to him. You, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. Yep. Why do I? Yeah. It just it it didn't fit. And I don't know why it needed to be in the show. I agree. I completely agree. Um, it was one of the head scratchers for me. Like, it felt like. We use a lot of wrestling analogies here uh, on the show. It felt like a Vince Russo 2000 WCW booking to me. Like, bro, everyone's shades of gray. There's no black. There's no white. They're all shades of gray. And I think in some situations, you don't need shades of gray. For sure. Especially if Peter Quint is going to possess the body of a small child for all of eternity and, and basically put Miles in the sunken place. Yep. And do the same to... Miles' little sister yeah. with the girlfriend he tricked into committing suicide. Yeah. I mean, that yeah. guy doesn't need an explanatory moment, tear-filled cry session. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, I, I would rather him just be a straight monster who yeah. is a sociopath. Yeah. And all that, like, negates, all that negates his tragic backstory. Mm-hmm. You know? Uh, okay. So now we know why you came to Bly Manor. Like, is that is that what we needed to know? What, did we need to know that you were blackmailed into stealing from Uncle Henry, you know, to pay off whatever debts you had to pay off or whatever the situation was? But that still doesn't that still doesn't um, justify. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, that, that, I mean, that's the word. Like, I, that's what I thought. Like, 
none of this justifies any of your choices. Yeah. And I feel like it's a waste of time showing it to me. Exactly. Also, I mean, had his plan went right, he essentially would have been the murderer of three different people. Absolutely. And I, I don't care. I don't care uh, that you're black, you know, that you're that you were blackmailed into this. That still doesn't justify the fact that you should kill three other people to to, quote unquote, get the life that you feel like you deserve. Yeah. And it's actually it's four because the first thing he does when he gets control of Miles is he goes to kill Hannah. Yeah. That. Hey, you know what? I didn't even think about that, but that is absolutely right. So I, I just don't need Michael Myers to have a tragic backstory. Right. Uh, Rob Zombie. Yeah. Suck it, Rob Zombie. Yeah. It's just a curious choice. I agree. I agree. It, it was one of the, for me, it was one of the, the points in the series where I went, oh, oh, I don't like that at all. Yeah. And I, I get that, like, broad strokes isn't always, you know, clear ethical strokes isn't always the play. But part of Bly Manor and the tragedy you're supposed to sort of feel is built on sympathetic characters and non-sympathetic characters. Yeah. And so I think, you know, the best ghost story episode is is clearly the, the next one where we go back to Viola and Perdita. Yes. And man, it is good to see Kate Siegel. That was that was my complete takeaway too. Like, where you been? I'm glad you're here now. Yeah. Uh she's great. She comes off just as powerfully wheeled as that character requires. Uh yeah, it's another Kate Siegel performance. Yep. Kate Siegel's great. I thought her hands reaching out of her dress to choke mm. her sister was really well Man. played. Yeah. Um, uh, so if we can backtrack just a smidge, I think the only jump scare that got me in this was that was in the previous episode, uh, episode seven, where um, Danny is trying to get Flora out of the out of Bly Manor. Yeah. And Flora's like, I'm not leaving out my brother. I'm not leaving out my brother. And then the camera goes to Danny and then it goes to a straight shot of uh, the lady in the water sucking M. Night Shyamalan. And and, you know, just that great jump scare of her grabbing Danny by the throat. And you thinking like, oh, crap, this is it for Danny. Mm -hmm. Like this is this is how Danny dies. Uh, that was the one that got me. Uh, it may have been because I was watching it at like one o'clock in the morning or whatever the situation is. But it, it did. It got me. I was like, oh, good job. <laughs> sure. Sure. Uh, you know, honestly, I didn't really jump at any of the scares in this one. Yeah. But I thought they were effective nonetheless. And the one you're talking about there was definitely effective. Christy uh, startled a bit at the hands coming out of the dress, which also didn't, for whatever reason, it just didn't, you know, it didn't push me. But I remember thinking that's the coolest possible visual for a ghost taking revenge yes. in these circumstances. You know what I mean? The, the, the that that's Flanagan. That's the care and the craft that he puts into his projects, and that's why we love him. Yep. I am left with a bit of my dilemma with Peter Quint there. Like Perdita sucks for getting exhausted caring for her sister. Yes. Viola sucks for not being grateful for the care she's receiving and having suspicions yes. of her sister. Yes. Uh, the fact that she becomes just so angry and traps everybody at Bly Manor is also, you know, like she's not a sympathetic character. Right. And so, like, I don't know if I'm supposed to see her and Perdita as both people who suck. Are they are they reduced down to mere mechanisms? Because that's not great storytelling either. Right. Right. Um, am I supposed to see this tragedy that Viola is consigned to as just like she has met her what she deserves or is it continuation of tragedy i the the again the the confusion about who i'm supposed to like and care about what happens to them and this one also got a little muddy for me uh do you feel that way or do you think it's more clear cut um i i i see your point on it i don't i don't necessarily think that it was clear cut um i i do think that this was I do think that this was more of a Shades of Grey type story than um, Hill House. You know, with Hill House, you had tragic characters, but you also had characters that you wanted to root for. This one, it's it's more difficult to find those characters that you want to root for. Um, except for me. I was all in on Kate Siegel. I well, don't care. I didn't care about her backstory. I was like, yeah, kill them all. <laughs> kill them all. Let the water sort them out. I don't care. Well, that's what I would have preferred. I would have <clears> preferred <throat> to be like, yeah, y'all are about to get what y'all deserve. Sure. Except she kind of sucks. And then she starts hurting people, too. You know yeah, what I mean? they don't deserve it. Yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, her sister, same deal. Like, you kind of suck. You get what you deserve. You're trapped at Hill House. Yeah. But, you know, she got a little worn out by her sister sucking. So, like, I would have just rather, I would have rather had the experience of, of being mad at Hill House for making Nail the bent neck lady. Sure. Then kind of sitting around and be like, oh, that's how Kate becomes the mechanism that makes the, the scary. Yeah. So, yeah. anyway. Um, I, like I said, I see where you're coming from on that. The the ending of this thing is uh, really tragic and really poignant. Mm-hmm. And I think that was Flanagan's aim and he pulled it off. Yeah. But I will tell you, to continue a theme in this episode, <laughs> it sucks to me that the, the best characters outside of the kids who, who just get to forget about everything, it sucks that the best characters get the worst ending. You know, Henry, Henry gets to kind of hit reset and be a dad to his biological daughter and his nephew, right? Right. Um, I think we're supposed to see Jamie and Danny having five good years as like, oh, that's really good because the voiceover says that, you know, mm-hmm. they had five years, which is more than a lot of people get. But Danny did nothing except fix the problem and then get consigned to an eternity at the bottom of the lake, half melded to a vengeful ghost who is out to destroy everything it comes in contact with. Yeah. And like she just continues to do the right thing, right? So she she kind of takes Viola's remnant into herself, but then when she finds out that she might hurt Jamie, she checks out and goes to make sure the threat's over. And the last thing we hear about her is that she's going to live for eternity walking the the grounds of Bly, becoming less and less who she is. And I'm like, "Dude, don't do that to your don't do that to your best most sympathetic character." Yeah. Um and I get it. You can do that to like turn this into a real tragedy. Uh, this show doesn't end, you know, clearly telling you this is a tragedy or this is a comedy. We've talked about that. You know, the, the classic tragedy ends in a funeral. The classic comedy ends in a wedding. And this is a wedding in the midst of an ongoing funeral. Mm-hmm. And I think that's kind of why I'm, I'm ultimately dissatisfied with the ending of the series, because I'm glad Owen got out, although he has to live forever with a broken heart. Right. I'm glad Flora and Miles get out and they forget. I'm glad Henry gets another chance. But like Quint just gets to wink out into the afterlife without becoming dehumanized. Um, The same way that the plague doctor who just was caring for people and happened to run into Viola's ghost the first time she saw a kid there. You know, they got the same ending. Um, Yeah. And then, you know, Danny living at the bottom of the lake, perpetually welded to Viola, becoming less human is just awful. I just I hated it. But do you but do you feel like that that's ultimately what they're saying? Because, I mean, at the the very last shot of the series is uh, Carla Gugino, you know, curled up in that chair with the door open as, as she's drifting to sleep. Danny's hands on her shoulder. Well, that's where I wanted to get to. So that is either kind of I mean, I'll just say it, it's kind of a cop out. OK. Or a problem with world building. So either either it's true that basically Danny's goodness negates Viola's vengefulness for all mm-hmm. eternity, and so nobody gets trapped at Bly Manor anymore. Right. Or Danny is out free to move around her loved one. Right? I mean, it can't be both. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And so I'm left there going, well, if if Danny's here then somehow she's been separated from Viola and Viola's free to continue wreaking havoc. Or that is Jamie's version of the dead fiance puka face guy. Mm. And it's just, it's an expression of her continuing affections for Danny and the way that, you know, in that, in that last episode, Carla delivers the line that like to, to Flora, where she's telling Flora, don't worry about when he dies because some part of him will live in you. Mm-hmm. And okay, that, I mean, that's fine. If that's what's going on with uh, Jamie's character there at the very end, falling asleep in a chair, hoping that Danny's ghost walks through the door. It seems like a sign that Flanagan's uncomfortable leaving things where he wanted it to be or where he'd set the story up to go. Like it's either a tragedy that Jamie is living forever pining for this love who nobly died or Jamie's free to move about, but then also Viola is. And it just, it just came down to me to be like, pick a side, Mike. Hmm. Are we supposed to go out on a sad note? Or are we supposed to go out on a noble sacrifice note? 
and you're trying to have your cake and eat it too. I mean, as you're thinking about that, I also don't understand why Viola's possession worked different than everybody else's. Like when Jessel and Quint possess the kids, they just immediately become the dominating personality. Mm-hmm. Why does this rage monster possessing Danny become part of who she is lurking in the background? Because there's that analogy of uh, it's a tiger in the dark waiting for its moment. But we we have been told that Viola has be, been so degenerated, she's on a regular loop, right? Mm-hmm. She It's not like she has conscious agency anymore. She's just repeating the rhythms of a life that is gone. Yeah. And doing it in a vengeful way. So, like, why is she now either able to be restrained in a way we've not seen any other ghost who possesses someone be restrained or showing so much agency that she's sitting around and waiting for her moment to strike? Well, maybe maybe it is, uh, and I feel like I'm starting to make this a trope now. But maybe it's the Toby mechanism, where like she had to had to get her legs underneath her and remember who she was and, and what she was capable of, and maybe maybe being in Danny's body was the way to do that. Because there's, you know, I, I think something that I didn't realize until I went back and watched that episode again is Danny. Uh, one of her eyes changes colors after yeah. Viola, uh, you know, uh, becomes part of her. And so I just wonder if, like, maybe just because she was on such a loop that she was basically on autopilot and it just took her a while to 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 become strong again and to figure out what she was what she's wanting to do. I don't know. I'm, I'm just trying to trying to make sense of it. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, the, if that's how they had explained it, that would work great. Like if they're like, sure. you know, we've taken her out of her environment. She's weak now, but nothing can hold her back. That's fine. Or if living in Danny had started to reverse the process. And so we started seeing the eyes not be fleshed over, but like she started to become more Viola. Yeah. And like the strength of personality came back. But again, I kind of feel like she she is still this vengeful rage monster that for whatever reason is either lurking now in a way that suggests agency or it's not like every other ghost we've seen. Even the idea that like, I mean, I guess I can just keep doing this because it Flanagan's a good storyteller. And so I'm just left being like, why can't I pick up what you're laying down? Uh-huh. So the whole idea is that she became a ghost, the first ghost at Bly Manor because she would not leave. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, she leaves with Danny. Yeah. Um, and, and somehow her gravity is taken away, which lets the other ones go. But like, why? The whole point was she is bound and determined to stay on this property. Why would her possessing someone mitigate that? Sure. Uh, why doesn't, you know, when, when Danny drives across the threshold, the person who is the center of gravity that's holding everybody dead, why didn't it snap Viola out of Danny and she heads back to the pond? So I just, I come away from this thing going, this is a really, sweet story in in a sense, a tragic sweet story, but there's stuff that's just trailing out there that I think just doesn't leave it as tightly woven together as I wish it would be. Sure. And I I feel like this works in in comparison to Jordan Peele's works. I mean, those are the two guys I hold in the highest regard in, in the, in the genre for sure, but among the best in the, in all of filmmaking. Yeah. I feel like get out was a perfect movie. It was tight. Nothing was left undone. Just super well done. Us was incredibly compelling, really interesting, uh, but it just left certain things in the world untied in a way Get Out didn't. So, like, how did the doppelganger downstairs, how how does it re- react if the person it's emulating upstairs goes to France? Yeah. You know, stuff like that. And so I feel like Hill House, apart from some of the weirdness with the Red Room, was pretty much a perfect series, a perfect story. When you get to Bly Manor, a lot of the same stuff I love is there. A lot of the powerful storytelling and world building is there. It's just kind of more sloppily wrapped up. Mm -hmm. And I really like Bly Manor. I just wish there could be some more tightening down of plot points and world building and some more of these loose strings tied up. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I totally understand where you're coming from on that. Um, I think, you know, and this is something that I said last week, I think because I 
was so far removed from Hill House that I didn't have any anything going into this. I was just like, okay, this is a brand new thing. Hopefully it's going to be as good and uh, and let's go with it. And I think that I just I watched it more as a fan than I did as a critic or as a reviewer. And I just I really enjoyed the ride that it took me on. Now, obviously, you're right. There are several questions that should be answered, and and, I, and unfortunately, they won't be. Um, and you know, like uh, like you said, with this one, I feel like that this is a beautiful painting with maybe some streaks left in it. Mm-hmm. And then with Hill House, it was kind of a mosaic, right? Where like all the dots fit in together to bring in one big picture. Um. And and to be truthful with you, man, I just until you brought this stuff up, I didn't even I didn't even see it. I guess I was just I just really enjoyed the ride and was just happy to have more Mike Flanagan and happy to have more of these people, you know, from the mm-hmm. Flanagan universe in my life again. But uh, you've you have raised some very interesting questions. And and I think I need to go back and rewatch it with those questions in my head to see if I still enjoyed as much as I did the first time around. Well, I think there's a world where Flanagan, somebody he wrote with, people listen to this podcast are like, no, dummy, that's explained here. You missed it. You know what I mean? I'm I'm willing to believe the sure. problems on my end. And you went to where my my mind went to. You know, we'll every now and then you'll find out that somebody has discovered a new piece of work from Van Gogh or I don't know, some Italian person. <laughs> and it, it it's often not a completed work. It's an early sketch. It's some of the preparatory work they did to get ready to paint the masterpiece. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's kind of what's going on with Blind Manor. I feel like it's a sketch and I'm thrilled to get it. And I'm so happy to have it. And really, a sketch from Mike Flanagan is better than anything that 95% of people working in horror will produce in their lifetime or their career, you know? But it's just, it's not. Starry Night. It's a sketch of Starry Night. Sure. It's kind of how I feel about it. And so I don't want to hate it. I just also want to acknowledge like it's not as perfect as the finished product. We've all been paying money to go into museums to look at for years. Sure. I know I sound much more negative here. I really like Bly Manor. I'll watch Bly Manor again. Uh, I just feel like there's some, some stuff lingering that there wasn't when I last watched a Flanagan property. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'll disagree with you on that. I think that the last Flanagan property we saw was Dr. Sleep, and there's definitely some some stuff that, well, maybe there was just more disappointment than there was anything in that. I also think I was more enthusiastic about Dr. Sleep than you were. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I was impressed in the way that Flanagan brought Kubrick, Stephen King together, mm-hmm. right? Then I was, this isn't how I would have written the story out. Now, I would have rather had the ending of the book, but... I didn't think the problem was with Flanagan. I thought it was with his source material. Here, I'm like, this is pretty much your story, man. Yeah, I, uh, I wasn't. I, I love the first two thirds of of Doctor Sleep, and I'd still, I'll put it up against anything. But the 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 final act is is where it gets me. Yeah, I, and I think that's where Flanagan's under the constraint of trying to reconcile basically three streams. Yeah, and it just it's hard to do. But I, I still, I feel that way about this too, though, man. Like I was excited to see the conclusion of this. And then it basically, you feel like this thing wraps up in the first 10 minutes mm-hmm. uh, of episode nine. And then you go on this love story with, um, what's her name? Jamie, Janie. Yep. Jamie and Danny. And I think that he wanted this to be another, like, <gasps> I didn't see that coming with Carla Gugino winding up being Jamie. But I, I picked up on that probably around episode five or six. I was a little behind you, but it clicked for me when they show them in the florist shop. Yeah. I'm like, oh, that's that's who Carla is. Because she's like, I love you. I'm not tired of you yet. And I, I was like, oh, yeah. Okay. That's the that's how we get to Carla Gugino. Yeah. It, uh, I don't know, man. It, I, I did. I, I enjoyed it. Uh, it mm-hmm. wasn't, it wasn't exactly what I thought it was going to be, but it was good to have, it was good to have a Mike Flanagan original property back in my life. For sure. And, uh, I highly recommend it to anybody. Yeah, see, I'm with you on that. I know I've been much more negative in both these episodes, but again, most people in the genre aren't going to hit anywhere near yeah. what the Bly Manor series is. So, Absolutely. You want to do our ratings? Yeah, do it up, man. Uh, scale of 1 to 10, wh- where would you put this? I'm going to give this a 7. Okay. 
it's probably, you know, if you've stacked up all the sevens I've given out over the course of this podcast, it's going to be probably the best seven. Yeah. I loved a lot of it. I have some questions. Didn't feel like I was super scared. You know, I didn't think that there's a whole lot of frights in this one. So very thankful. It's well done. You've earned a seven. Uh, I'm going to go a half a star above that and just say seven and a half. Sure. Uh, but I, th- I think you're absolutely right. I think if you're looking at other sevens that we've given other properties before, this is probably the top 3% of it. Uh, and something that I look forward to watching again fairly soon. Uh, did you see anything scary in this? I'm going to say yes. And it's in praise of Flanagan. So the two things that really stand out as scary in this show show up for me in the last couple episodes. One, when Viola, Lady in the Water, gets Flora and in her mind is singing and dancing with her daughter. But we hear on the outside, it's just creepy ghost moaning. Mm -hmm. I don't know why that worked for me. Yeah. And it really made... It brought in this like cold chill of like, this is how degenerated she is. Yeah. And I actually like, I felt like that's the creeping hand of death I feel on my neck. I don't know. It just made me think about my mortality. Mm -hmm. So that really got me. And then my wife praised this point too, uh, when Viola grabs Henry and we see that she can actually open her mouth, but what's inside of her is just emptiness. Uh That really worked for me, too. And my wife was like, man, that was not cheap. It wasn't like super gory. It was just straightforward scary. Yeah. It wasn't over the top. It was just really well executed. And again, in praise of Flanagan, because that's not really acting. You know what I mean? That's him Mm -hmm. putting a visual on. And the guy knows how to make something really terrifying that doesn't involve a ton of gore or a cheap jump scare or whatever. Uh, there was something about that interaction where Viola felt more sinister than she had ever felt at any point in the thing for me. And so, yes, I saw something scary. And I think a lot of people who watch this will be like, yeah, man, we watched some scary stuff in that. Yeah. Yeah, I agree, man. Uh, I think those are two really good points. Um, again, I think the jump scare in the at the end of episode seven uh, was really good. Um, also, I'm going to tell you, man, that the. Uh, the episode that you said was probably your favorite with with Henry, where he meets the sinister, evil version of himself. I think in a real world way scared me. Sure. As like the duality of man mm-hmm. and, you know, how we all have those have those darker sides to to us. And uh, and that one just it, I, for me, it just stood, it stood out. And uh, I thought it was I thought it was really well done. So, yeah. Well, we've got something where Henry Thomas could could do more because his like leering smile Uh is really quite terrifying. It is. And I don't know that everybody can pull off a sadistic smile, but man, he did. And so I'm like, I need to see him as a Hannibal Lecter type figure, you know, like let's get that movie made. Yeah, absolutely. I'm for it. Well, all right, man. Well, I think that's going to put a bow on the haunting of Bly Manor. And uh, I think it's another, another success for Mr. Flanagan and, I'm glad that we were able to review it here on the show. I agree. Cosign. So let us know what you thought about it. Hit us up in the Facebook group. We saw something scary. Uh, Remember to rate, review, subscribe. Uh, Give us those five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts. Those are always very much coveted and help spread the word about the the podcast. And, of course, if you want to partner up with us, man, we'd love to have you be a partner with us on Patreon. Patreon.com forward slash scary podcast. And join one of the tiers. Get your bonus episode. Looks like this Mutt's bonus episode is going to be the uh, the new movie Antebellum. And so for you patrons, look for that in your podcast feed uh, sometime next week. We had planned to visit the fan-made uh, Jason movies Friday the 13th. We're actually going to take a detour uh, into Haddonfield, Illinois, and we're going to talk about uh, Halloween 2 next week. I uh, figured that was appropriate for it being Halloween week. So uh, looking forward to talking to you about that, Jeff. I know Michael Myers is one of your favorites and uh, looking forward to I I don't I know I've seen the movie, but I can't remember the last time I've seen the movie. So I'm looking forward to revisiting this and, and really kind of getting it with fresh eyes. Yep, I'm looking forward to going back to to Haddonfield. Yeah, oh, it's going to be a lot of fun. So until then, though, he's at right, Jeff. I'm at Derek Zoo and we are out of time. Uh, sorry for the sniffles this week. I'm battling a head cold. So uh, I appreciate you bearing with me on that. Uh, Thank you guys so much for listening, 
And we will see you guys back here next week. Until then, stay away from clowns and sewers, blind men with turkey basters, white people with teacups. Bye-bye, man.